Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have in the beach shack an amazing woman. Sarah Davis, she decided years ago that she wanted to paddle the Nile River in Africa. It took two years of planning and then finally her dream came true. She paddled from Rwanda to Egypt, taking on hippos, crocodiles and dealing with the police and all the great local people along the way. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Sarah. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. It's a person that's done something I think is absolutely incredible. I've done a lot of paddling, ocean paddling, river paddling over the years, but this is another level altogether. And it's a great story that I think you'll really enjoy. So welcome to the Beach Shack, Sarah Davis. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Now let's paint the picture to all the listeners. And there's a lot of listeners around the world that will probably resonate with what you're talking about. Now, you came up with this idea to paddle the Nile River. Now, where did that come from? So I sort of got to a point where, you know, life was good, but I just had this feeling that this wasn't it, there was something missing, you know, that feeling like the the round peg being smashed into the, the square hole and just just wanting more. And it was, you know, I started searching, like, what is that? And it's always that hard, you know, to, to be what you can't see. And then I kind of saw it and I saw a couple of people who I would describe as just like sort of ordinary people who'd gone on some sort of big adventures and expeditions and they weren't your classic kind of, I don't know, ex-military or people who've been climbing mountains since they can walk. And it just, it really resonated. It was like, oh, you know, ordinary people going doing this. It's like, that's what I want to do. You know, for years I'd read the books about great explorers and adventurers and suddenly it was like, oh, maybe I could have a crack at this. So then it was deciding what to do and and trying to like the, the ego quite like the idea of doing a first and I do sort of look at, I wanted to do something paddling because that was my sport and looked at a few things. I looked at actually paddling around Australia, which obviously you had Bonnie in not so long ago talking about what she's doing. But, you know, I knew that that had been done. Freya had done that a little while before. So then I was looking at the rivers, saw the Nile and saw that while people had done, you know, parts of it and significant parts, no one had done a source to see or no woman had rather. So I thought, yeah, that looks good. And I love Africa. So no idea how I'm going to do this, but it seems like a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> now, putting the plan together wouldn't have been easy. One, you probably didn't know what to expect either. So how did you start putting the plan together? Because, I mean, this it's not only just a river, there's plenty of danger over there as well. There sure is. And because it's something that very few, very, very few people have sort of done, it's really hard to, you know, there isn't the wiki of, you know, how to... Or, you know, even organize an expedition, let alone one down the Nile. So it was just a lot of Googling, reading a couple of books and then finding some experts. So one guy who was really great, who I saw in a, mentioned in a couple of books was a chap called Pete Meredith. And he's led expeditions down the Nile and various rivers through, through Africa and is, you know, world renowned for his experience. So I reached out to him and that was just gold because it gave me the bare bones of my project plan of things to consider, like the approvals from all the governments and how tricky that is, because again, it's another sort of undocumented process. And you've got a number of countries. So there you've got Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda. I ended up not doing South Sudan, but then Sudan and, and Egypt. So very, very difficult, you know, to find out just what approvals you need. And then, like you say, there's all the risks there. So understanding, you know, what the environmental risks are, like what the river conditions are. I'm not a whitewater kayaker, so hence I had to do some of it rafting. Then all the things that are the nasties in the river, your crocs and your hippos, and then off the river, all the snakes and spiders and goodness knows what. So yeah, it, you know, understanding the equipment, working at what time of year to go. It took, it was a lot of, of research, but 
it was all really interesting because, you know, it's getting to speak to loads of, you know, after Pete spoke to so many different people and then had people reaching out to me as well going, oh, I hear what you're doing and I can give you some advice. And, you know, gradually just turned into a, a, a plan that sort of got me to the start line. So you put your team together and then it was time to head off and do the challenge. How was that feeling as you're about to get onto the plane and fly over and start this massive exhibition? Well, it was it was scary. Everyone kept asking me, it's like, oh, you must be really excited. And I could get, you know, theoretically, I should have been because, you know, I've been planning for two years and talking about it nonstop. The reality was I was, I don't know if I had to swear on here, but I was shitting myself because I knew, you know, what, what was ahead of me, not just sort of, you know, the, the physical task, but all the risks there. I, you know, I describe myself as a professional risk manager. That's what I do for work, but with this passion for risk taking. So I'd really, I, you know, I knew I was kind of getting into, but there was still so much uncertainty at that point. While I had, you know, potentially the team sorted, like I was engaging people locally and I still didn't have my rafting team, but I got to a point where I just wasn't going to be able to do any more organizing here. Things had just ground to a halt. It's like, I've just got to go to Africa and just see if I can pull this off or I'm just going to have a nice holiday there, worst, worst case, which is not so bad. So yeah, I was so apprehensive and just felt like I was just taking this enormous leap um, with still a lot to kind of sort to sort out. So yeah, it was a bit intimidating. <laughs> so, you know, I've read a, a bit about your story. You're putting a book together. You had a bit of trouble at the start when you're driving, you had to drive from uh, where would you start from? And then you had to get to where you need to start the paddle at the river. There's, there's a lot of dramas and uh, unexpected events that happened. It certainly was. It felt like it was like that last test, you know, for something you really want, you, you get thrown these obstacles and it's what it really felt like. So I'd engage these three, these great guys, um, Ugandan rafting guides, Paolo, Peter and, and Coa, and they'd organised, like they'd found someone I could hire to drive us. So we had this big people carrier, like so much gigs, you've got the raft and the all the equipment that was going on there, you know, three barrels worth of food, got in the car and sort of got about two hours into the journey because we needed to get to Rwanda. Um, I still needed to get the approvals, but then to go to the source. And within about three hours, the car started overheating and and I was like keeping pretty zen about the whole thing because it's like, this is not the worst thing in the world. Like we can solve this. I know we can solve this one. But then we did have a big problem. Like at one point they opened up the the, the back of the car um, to, to get something out to try and fix it and I just heard this crashing of glass and I was like glass I haven't got anything oh shit I suddenly realized what it was it was this really special glue to repair the raft with and I've been told like treat it like a baby and the boys have been looking after it and anyway so that got smashed and was disappearing into the cement and long story short I think we went through I think it was three cars and four different drivers just to get to the source. Like one driver in who was set to take us to the source, he got arrested overnight. <laughs> the car got in, was taken by the police. The guy who'd done, who'd done the arrest had taken the keys to the car home with him. And he was, oh, it was just ridiculous. It was one thing after another. And then it was like, is this a sign? Is this a sign I shouldn't be doing this? Is, like, is it the test? Is it a sign? But then, you know, we, we actually, we walked into the source and we, we got to, we had some guys to take us in. So it's still hotly debated exactly where the source of the Nile is. And, and I chose one that was found by this 2006 expedition. And, and it had been this, and I'd seen a picture of it, you know, this green sign with yellow writing on it that had been on my vision board. And, and, you know, walking into this forest, it was beautiful in there. And then we sort of came around this corner and, and there was the sign. And it was literally just like a muddy pool underneath it. Like the source of any river is not very exciting, but just seeing that sign, like, you know, there were, there were tears of, you know, happiness, enjoyment, relief, um, to actually, to see that. And then, yeah, then the next day we got underway. Was there any type of nervousness or fear at that stage? Because, was it the danger at the beginning wasn't as bad as what it was as you expected going down further down the river? Yeah, and I think, I mean, that first day, like, I was really apprehensive as we were driving to to put in, you know, thinking, like, what have I forgotten? You know, I've got all this new gear, which, yes, I practiced, had a go at using, but I just felt like all the gear, no idea. What have I forgotten? Is there anything fundamental? Stressing, stressing. But then when I saw the river... It was just like all that stress just melted away and it's just like, wow, we're here. And, we, you know, we put the raft together, you know, we blew it up and 
put everything on and got on the river and you know that moment when pedals first hit and we had this massive crowd around us people get like ended up just like locals watching this bizarre spectacle unfold in front of them going I don't know what is going on here but it was it was certainly more interesting than any anything else I think at the time and it was just extraordinary and then we're going along and there's like kids and everything running and shouting and screaming along the river next to us it was just amazing so that that point the fears kind of disappeared. And as you say, like we knew at the start then we weren't in crocodile territory. We weren't in hippo territory and we were, we were above um, some dams. So we weren't in white water. So those are sort of three, the main three things that I was most worried about on this section. So we kind of, we did get a few days of warming up into it. And then how many days? So you're taking off down. Where do you stay at night? Do you have, do you have plan pulling into to camp or how does that work? Yeah, it was camping. And then, so, I mean, sometimes it was tricky. To begin with, it wasn't too bad finding a camping a camping spot. And we'd literally just pull up on the side of the river and find somewhere, throw the tents up, cook some dinner, and, and off we go. As we went on, it got progressively harder when you had the papyrus, which is just like these giant dandelions, but you're talking like 10 feet high, very thick and completely impenetrable. And we'd have sections where... You've got papyrus on both sides, which one, it was made it difficult for camping. Two, I really didn't like it because you just, it meant you didn't have good exit points. Like if there was an issue, it would make it very hard to, to get off the river and get to, to get to help. But initially it was quite, it was pretty easy to find those camping spots. Now, as you're pulling into different areas, as you said, at the beginning, the locals were, you know, very uh, excited and supportive. Did you have anywhere along the trip that they weren't, as accommodating? No, you know what, throughout from in, in all the countries I went through, we never had a problem with people saying you can't stay here or or anything like that. You know, and when it got into Sudan, but I could have been hosted every single night if if I'd wanted to be. And we, we did get hosted one evening, which was an amazing experience. The only challenge got to when we got up through to Egypt where the police were really protective like the you know obviously they're really trying to protect their tourism and anything bad happening to tourists can impact that and has impacted it really heavily in the past so they you know we I had a, a local Egyptian paddler with me and we wanted to camp and once the police got sort of wind of what we were doing it was like that was the end of that and sort of had to stay in in hotels and have a police escort all the way but it made me feel very safe so you know I could understand why they were doing it. Did you have a plan on how many kilometres you did each day down the river before you, you stopped or is it just something that you had a bit of a plan but just took it as it sort of happened? Totally, yeah. You nailed it, yeah. We, you know, there was I'd broken, so I had my, my GPS, my Garmin, and I put the route into it and I put it in in 50K sections thinking broadly 50 kilometres a day, but, you know, we'll see. And and then it really did vary, you know, when in the in the raft where we had days where we were going across lakes, you know, slow moving water, it was really, really slow. They're not very, I don't know what's the water equivalent of aerodynamic, but they don't they don't go through the water very fast. And then I think the biggest day we did was about ninety two k's, and that was when I was kayaking. As you said, there's crocodiles and and hippos, and as everyone knows, hippos probably killed more humans in the world than, than any other animal. How many days before you got to that point and how did it feel when you did start seeing the crocs and the hippos? <laughs> we, we, we literally only had, it's like day six they came along. It's like, <laughs> oh, really? Do we have to deal with this so soon? And it was horrible because, yeah, it was one of my big fears and I'd woken up day six, woke up that morning and sort of, you know, stretching out in my tent's, thinking about getting dressed and then I could hear there's just that very distinctive noise that hippos make and there was clearly one in the in the river outside making its way I think upstream to where it was going to chill out for the day so like we were super tense getting on the water that day sort of knowing like okay this was it and we've been told like in um and these guys had had experience of dealing with hippos like you you, you smack the, the water with your paddle and generally they'll pop up because they sort of sleep for most of the day sleeping under, under the water and um and then you see where they are and you go around them and I thought that sounds like a great plan that'll work really well awesome so we did that for the first group of hippos that we came across and that was fine but yeah then we ended up having a pretty nasty experience with with one of them yeah and what was that experience <laughs> so, <laughs> 
we were coming along, and the thing that made it really hard here, so this was in Rwanda, and the river's only about, I don't know, 50 to 70 metres wide, so it's not that wide. So you haven't got a lot of space to shimmy around them. And it was really windy, and it had a sort of short, steep bank, which meant you couldn't see the really the river ahead. So we were coming up to do a left and then a right. As we turned left, we could see in the in the corner this baby hippo popped up. So we stopped paddling, but obviously the river's then carrying us. I literally just got the words out, where's mum? And she pops up to the right of us. And, you know, you don't need to be any kind of animal <laughs> guru to know that that was a really big mistake as we drifted between mum and her and her baby. So she just lost it, came at us. We paddled with all our might to get away from her. Co, who was on the oars, said she put her head under to kind of try and flip us, but it was really heavy. We've got the frame and the oars and everything on there, so she couldn't. So she sort of rethought about it and then came again. And I just remember feeling this almighty tug on the back of the raft. I was up front with a paddle, paddling with um, Peter and and looked around to see Mama Hippo firmly attached to the back of the raft. (laughs) (laughs) And just this primal fear that sort of goes through you. And it was just like, shit. But I did remember thinking at the time, it's like, yeah, but at least I'm at the front of the raft, she's at the back and there's me, but there's Koa between us. I've still got a bit, I've still got a chance here. <laughs> um, but I think the, I don't know whether it like, when she bit into it, the, it would have popped a bit, the air would have come out, whether it just, it stopped her, but she did let go, thankfully, and backed off a little bit, which gave us a chance. We got to, we were at the river's edge by then and jumped out and sort of just paused and watched and then she moved away a little bit. So then we were able to unload the raft, pull it out. And thankfully, we'd, I'd managed to arrange to get some replacement glue. So that glue that had smashed onto the onto the tarmac, I'd managed to organize getting some replacement glue, thankfully. So then, you know, we had a, quite a big sort of 40 centimeter by 10 centimeter hole in the raft. Um, so the boys spent an hour or so patching that. And, and then the, the scariest probably one of the scariest parts of the whole trip was then getting back on the river after that, having, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. We, you, you go through the, you know, work out what worst case is and, and you go, yeah, you know, that is a risk. But then when it's all fine doing that in theory, when you're actually faced with the reality of that, it really brings it home. You know, and we, we deal with this stuff in our everyday lives, but you know, you get in a car, we know that there are risks there. You have a car accident, it really brings home what that risk is. Um, and that was very much that. And this was, you know, day six. And it's like, we've got so much more of this to deal with. This doesn't bode well. <laughs> so that's day six. How, how many days did you plan that it would take? Oh, look, I was sort of estimating probably around five months or so. But because this was all self-organized, you know, I, I didn't have teams helping with this so I was it was very much do your section pause then need to organize the next section and and so on and so forth so the whole thing ended up taking about six months but so it wasn't it wasn't that far over what really what I was expecting and the having the time to stop was nice because I mean these were great countries to to spend some time in and you know just so many incredible people were, were helping me on the way that just it blew me away the amount of people who got behind it and helped me to make make it possible with really, you know, nothing in it for them. Did you have a support crew on land or was it just you guys in the raft and then you made it as you went, you just sort of worked it out from there? Yeah, I didn't have, there was no ground crew. It was literally, it was just me and whoever I was heading within the raft in Sudan. I did, we did have a, a um, someone for a, the first sort of few hundred Ks as ground support and then a boat with us through the rest of Khartoum, which was, I was encouraged to have that. But what I did have was I'd engage an organization to to give me an operator to, to check in with every day, to give him an update on things like the security situation, my health, mental state, secure, um, supplies, and, you know, the comms equipment. He would then give me quite a detailed, a very detailed actually intel report and, you know, was there to deal with any crisis that came up. Also that there was a, this company had a cybersecurity team. So they were looking at my social media, like looking at people who were following me in case there was anyone sort of dodge, dodgy following me. And they were also checking things like chat rooms and dark web for any chat. So we did have people with sort of form for kidnapping who were talking about me, which, you know, sort of just then had to, 
be a little bit bit careful and do things, you know, like social media posts were delayed because obviously people, there's no surprises where I'm going when you're just going down the Nile. The only element of surprise I had was the timing of it. So putting delays on that and then being really clear, you know, I've got people with me, not trying, you know, really trying not to look like a soft target. So it is a, a big possibility of kidnapping as you're coming, like, you know, down the river. Absolutely, through through these these countries, many countries throughout the you know the world, and I did have this hostile environment awareness training before I left to understand what the the risks were through those through those countries, and obviously one of them was kidnap, and got to understand the stages of a kidnap and and all sorts of things, but just how commonplace actually kidnapping is in pretty much nearly every country around the world, and you know the majority of the time we don't hear about it because it's it's all resolved. There are teams in place to do those negotiations and and it's sort of, sort of all dealt with quite quietly. So it was but it was a risk throughout and, you know, just being something to be to be conscious of. And you know, I had there was one time someone contacted through my Facebook page and I just got this high. And I had a, a few names that I was you know, been told to be on the lookout for and I, I just wasn't sure whether this was one. So I sent it to to Dave and said, Oh like who the guy I was checking with was like, is this one of the, the ones he was like, let me check, came back and said, no, it's not. But this guy is a um, Libyan uh, militia rebel and he's got extremist friends through Sudan and Egypt. <laughs> and he was in cartoon two weeks after you were there. I was like, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> really happy he knows about me. <laughs> yeah, just what you need, isn't it? Eh? <laughs> it really so it was, but it was, I don't know, it, there were a couple of times that maybe felt a bit nervous about it, but it wasn't really something that I was stressing about. It was just aware of it. I did everything I could to avoid. And how were the crew with you? Were they, uh, you know, helpful or, you know, sometimes it's a bit of a, a hindrance. And, and also, you know, you're, you're spending 24-7 with these people. Yeah, which was one of the things I was probably worried about going into it, you know, um, that, I'm someone that very much needs their own space and their own time. I'm an only child. Don't always play well with others. And so suddenly that, you know, with people 24-7 is, was full on. But it was actually so much better than I thought it was going to be because you just, I don't know, you're not in full-on survival situation, but you're really relying on each other. And and they were great, you know, I had different people throughout and they were just all really, really great guys and and we all got on really well. I was, I was just so, I just, you know, gave thanks so many times for the people that joined me on the trip. And and because it was, you know, I had the, the, the local guys with me, the insights I got into life in those countries was so much richer. And I think, you know, being the only sort of foreign person there got invited like in in Uganda one night the so each village um has a has a chairman and that a little bit like the setup of a company and he's got his sort of like his executive which is just sort of for running the the village and dealing with any minor sort of things that don't need to be dealt with with the police doing projects and stuff and we were invited by one of the chairman to stay in his in his house, you know, and it was just this incredible experience. Although it wasn't so good for his for his granddaughter, who like there she was like a few grandkids, but she would be I don't know maybe six seven years old. And he led her over, and she had a her little hands like pressed to her eyes, so she couldn't see me. And that kind of if I can't see you, you can't see me. And um, and as she got as he brought her closer, he pried one of her little hands away, and she just looked at me. <laughs> His eyes just like why pulled her hand away and just screamed and ran. It was literally <laughs> like she'd just seen a ghost. Um, so it probably wasn't a great experience for her, but for me getting to go and like be invited into these people's homes, it was just it was amazing. It was such a privilege. And was it a, a surprise on the way they live? You know, that the, the six months you traveled through the country, it must have been an eye-opener in certain parts. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, I've been to Africa on holidays quite a quite a few times, but certainly, you know, getting that that deeper insight into just to what what life is like, how incredibly hard it is in in all the countries, really. And you know, going through Sudan at the time, they were trying to overthrow the government, um, Al Bashir, who'd been in for near on thirty years. So there were protests going on, and just you know, understanding all the reasons behind that, and and. Yeah, just how tough it is. And the lack, you know, so many of these countries, the lack of opportunity, you know, talking, say, to a lot of guys in, in Uganda and 
there just weren't the opportunities there. Like they, yep, go into school, but there's, there's just nothing there for them to then go and, and do. And yeah, you just realize how tough it is. And there was a part, there's a section there where in South Sudan you, you couldn't go through. Give us a, a reason why that was the case. Yeah, I mean, I'd hope to do from, so it goes from Uganda into South Sudan. The capital, Juba, is towards the south of South Sudan, and I really wanted to do just that initial stretch into South Sudan. I knew I wasn't going to go be able to go through the rest of it just from a security perspective, like they were still going through a pretty intense civil war and and things still hadn't settled down since they, they gained independence from Sudan. Um, but then the intel that came through was that the... Um, the National Intelligence Security Service, so sort of the work for the government, were suspicious of what I was doing, which I, I get. Like this concept of sort of going off and doing things for fulfillment and stuff like that. It's like, why would you do something like this? Like, there's that suspicion of, are you a spy? Uh, the, what is your ulterior motive here? Are you a journalist? And so the intel we'd received was that they were going to detain me, but there was no way of knowing, is that an hour? Is that two hours? Is it four weeks, months, um, you know, and I'd been advised from a diplomatic sort of level that they would not be able to provide any assistance to me if I got into trouble in, in South Sudan. Um, so it was just a risk basis. It just, it wasn't worth the risk. And, you know, why if I go and do it and then it becomes a huge problem, that makes it that much harder for the next person coming along. And yeah, it just wasn't worth the risk. It's something I want to go back there and, and do one day. I'm really hoping to get to go through um, South Sudan but we'll wait and see. So at that part where you drove through that part and then got back on the river further down? We ended up flying. So I flew from, from Uganda up to Sudan and then so I had then the, the Khartoum uh, Rowing and Canoe Club who I'd met. I'd done a recce to Egypt and Sudan before setting off, so about a year before, just to try and get a bit of a network there, get a sense of what support I would be given because I just wasn't sure you know what it would be and just got so much support they were they were all amazing so yeah so then flew up there spent a little bit of time with those guys and then they helped me arrange to get the all the approvals um arrange for one of their paddlers to paddle with me and then set off for the sedan section now from there you're coming how, how much further did you have from that point so that was then i was really excited to then get in and you know, I knew the first part through um, Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda was was all rafting. It was very much where a lot more of the threats were from and sort of the white water and the animals and that. And I was really looking forward to more of that physical challenge of long days in the kayak. So from that point, I had about 3,000 Ks ahead of me and was just looking forward to being, being back in a kayak and, you know, getting back into to that, not dealing with all those other threats uh, and just, yeah, seeing what that was going to be like. You mentioned the white water part. How dangerous was that? Was that a challenge? Yeah, because like everything was. <laughs> so we, the way it was, you know, generally is what we would do is, we, so we on the raft we had um, uh, a white water kayak, a creek boat, so Co would – if we came, we could see rapids ahead, co jump in the, the, the kayak, go and check out, if, see if it was runnable and then come back. So quite a few times we'd had to portage, which is a pain in the ass because it takes that whole thing of unloading and reloading as a good hour. Um, but there was one day where we we came down and we'd sort of inadvertently gone a little bit too far into the rapids, although they weren't big, but it was just there was no way of getting back out of it. And co checked two of the channels was like, nah, not runnable. And what we could see of the other channel, it, it looked fine, but it's like my heart of hearts is like, well, if the other two weren't runnable, I've got a really funny feeling this isn't just some nice little gradual, we just ease down this grade two, three rapid. And um, so we set off and and like I did actually do this. I sort of put the, the GoPro on for that. Unfortunately, I didn't have the GoPro on for the hippo attack, but for this one, I, I did sort of the impending doom. And as we came around the corner, there was just this massive drop and this water just gushing over. It was like my worst, worst nightmare because I, I had – the reason why it was such a big fear for me anyway, I competing at Aussies so in, the, in surf lifesaving and I had what felt like a near-drowning experience in, in big surf up at Curra and just never fully recovered from it. And I really struggled to hold my breath underwater and I've done all sorts of things and I'd done swift water rescue technician to understand – what can go wrong in white water, which really just brought home just how dangerous it can be. 
So this was my worst, my worst nightmare. And we ended up, we just got, we tried to get into an eddy, you know, where there's the, you're away from being sort of sucked into, into it. And no, we just got sucked over this waterfall and amazingly we didn't flip. Peter got thrown out, but it all ended up being okay. And it sort of ended up being sort of like that type two fun where it's fun afterwards. But at the time it was terrifying, but we were laughing and we're like, oh my God, that was amazing. (laughs) Well, it would have been amazing looking at that footage. Yeah. And I did show, it's funny, I showed it to when we got back to, to Ginger in Uganda to some of the, the rafting guides there. And one of the, when it, when it, that shot of it, as soon as we sort of, as we came around the corner and saw it, and even he sort of is a, a lead rafting guy, did this sharp intake of breath of like, <gasps> and it's like, okay, that makes me feel so much better about being so scared when I saw it. It's like, if he's doing a sharp intake of breath. That's like, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> Now you uh, started, as you said, the kayaking part, which is you're probably more comfortable with after you know all the paddling you've done here in Australia. So, you know, you said you had what three thousand kilometres to go. How was that next stretch? It was great. I mean, it was it was tough. It, literally, I had headwinds all the way. I was just not blessed. There wasn't a downwind section for for any of it. Yes, we did have current helping, which was good. Um, so physically it took a bit of time to, to build up, you know, I was getting really bad blisters on my hands, uh, and just the discomfort. Like I wasn't in the kind of kayaks that I'd normally be in. So it didn't, you know, as far as having something I could really do leg drive from couldn't. So then, cause I'm anchoring sort of more from my butt and doing, trying, you know, trying to paddle from there, I was then getting back pain and, I just, I generally felt like I'd wake up in the mornings feeling like an 80 year old as I rolled over. It was, it was fairly uncomfortable, but you know, you'd warm up and it was just, you know, particularly what I loved, my, one of my sort of favorite sections was through sort of the north of Sudan. It was just breathtaking. And it's like, you're, you're paddling on a river through the world's biggest hot desert. It's sort of this really surreal experience in the color of the sand, this really sort of soft yellow and then camping every night we had, it was from when we got up to Khartoum and had a break, and then it was from Khartoum north. And it took us 32 days, you know, 31 nights of that were camping. And in just some of these spectacular, a lot of the time, spectacular places in the in the Sahara, you know, it was just, it was an incredible experience. And how was the heat? Was it extreme or it was bearable? Strangely not. I, I actually suffered more from cold than I did heat. Like there were times, you know, in the in the rafting where it, was, it got pretty hot and I don't actually remember through Sudan and I deliberately timed it so I wasn't going through the summer where it can get up to sort of the, the 50 degrees. Um, it wasn't to, because we had the headwinds and being on the water, like you're constantly being splashed. I, I actually didn't have so much of an issue with the heat, but again, being in the desert at night, the temperature really drops. And one night we had these fold out camp beds and one night I thought, oh, I don't want to sleep in the tent. I want to see, you know, out under the stars and put one of the camp beds out. And that was great. But what I hadn't appreciated is just how much warmth you get just from being on the ground. And as soon as you've got that air circulating under you, it was freezing. I was just lasted about an hour and I was like, quit. And then I got in because we had the, the boat there. So I got in the boat and slept, slept in that. And yeah, so it was, it was pretty fresh at night. And then, um, as you were coming to the end, what was that feeling like? You know, it was such it was such a mix of emotions and sort of quite contradictory. You know, there was that f- certain definite relief because it had literally been problem solving. You know, forget the the mental and physical side of it. The the just the constant problem solving and dealing with issues and day to day trying to to work things out. So there was a relief of getting that that break from that, and you know, just I was physically and mentally exhausted by the end of it but then just so happy to be at the end and then also sad you know this had been my life for the two years it had taken planning at the six seven months I've been in Africa so it was just lots of different emotions that that came up was there any part of the trip where you thought as you said it's physically and and mentally tough that you thought I can't go on I, I need to stop Strangely, no, no, there wasn't any point, you know, and part of that, whether it was through pacing or just, I just wanted to be there. I mean, I was, there were times when I was miserable and not enjoying it. And, and David was checking in with, he, he said one day, he said, Sarah, you're going to miss this when it's over. And that really, I really sort of took that on board 
and he was bang on right because I do really, really miss it. And and it was just uh, that reminder of enjoy this. You are you are going to miss this and and just embrace the challenges as they come. And then when you finished, was there a, a crowd there as you finished, or was there anyone? You know, uh, cheering you on as you finished. No, I, was just, I just put the GoPro on me and went, finish! Yeah. <laughs> and I was sitting like, oh, right, okay, how do I find the guy who's picking me up? But it was, what was really cool, I had then this like unexpected sort of welcome party. So I was like, then paddled down because I was like, okay, I don't know where I'm going to try and meet this person who I'd arranged to come and pick me in the, in the kayak up. I was like, okay, that looks fine. And there were some people at the top, so I was like, I need some help getting my kayak up these sort of the, the bank. And anyway, these guys came and helped me. They were up from over from Alexandria for the day, a group of them, and they ended up, they they helped me. They were asking me loads of questions. They bought me coffee and cakes and biscuits and it just, and then there were lots of photos and videos and they sort of ended up being this, you know, unexpected welcome party. And it was just, it was even better than if there'd been a planned one. Uh, so it was, it actually ended up being pretty cool. Oh, well, it's a great achievement and, um, you know, it must have been something that basically no one has ever done something like that. So you must be quite proud. Yeah, I was pretty, I was really pleased with it. And, and I, you know, it's, it's been really good writing the book to relive it because I think it's so easy. You sort of finish things and then you go, okay, on to the next thing or onto something else or back to normal life or whatever it is and not really unpack what happened, you know, and there was just so much to it. So then, you know, doing the the book as sort of really brought home like how 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 big it was because you sort of you forget it when you're dealing with it on a daily basis. You you don't you definitely lose perspective, and that writing the book then brought that perspective back, and and then sort of the, the, some of the takeaway lessons from it, what they were. So it was it's been a good process of doing that. Well, I want to touch on the mental health side because you did have problems with mental health in, in you know, early 2000s, mid-2000s. And tell us a bit about that because people would think to do something that you've just achieved would be unattainable because of, you know, the, your mental health prior. Yeah, and I was, you know, it was a concern going into it, you know, it's like because it can, I wouldn't say, yeah, it's sort of unpredictable. So the, the background, you know, I definitely dealt with, quite a bit of anxiety and stress through through work in the mid sort of 2000s and really felt that it it almost took me to a, that sort of breaking point and then you was then dealing with depression for a number of years and and it probably reached its its worst it would have been probably about 2011 I think and and just the depression got really really bad and and I do talk about this in the book and you know, got to that point that, you know, everything was just so hard and not wanting to be with people. I was actually, I'd taken time out from corporate to be a personal trainer. So that was that real challenge of just having to try and get all this energy together to be bright and bubbly and like, hey, how you doing? And right, let's go, let's run, let's go out, and the just exhaustion afterwards and just got so deep in the pit that I, I, I sort of get in my car and and just really hope someone would jump the lights and and just take me up because the internal pain was was just was so bad but I just you know wanted that to end and yeah it was a really really tough time but gradually came out of it but even then coming out of it was kind of scary because then you know how far there is to fall and how deep that kind of pit is it's like well if I'm well it's 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 horrible and it's scary but it, there's a certain safety when you're on you're in rock bottom and 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 it was almost hard coming out that fear of coming back and now you know yes I've had depressive episodes since definitely nothing as bad as it got to then but it, there's always that you know when I can feel it I feel like one of those cartoon characters sort of as being dragged down into into the pit kind of thing and just like <laughs> running on the spot trying to get out but you know having worked with with therapists and and on myself, you know, knowing the signs and the tools that work for me and, you know, it doesn't necessarily always work, but, um, you know, it's something that's, you know, I think it's, it's always there. It's, it's that, you know, it's the, the black cloud and sometimes it's really tiny, you can't see it, but then you can sort of see it, it starts to grow. And I think yeah, it's one of those things that will always be there. Now, looking back on the achievement of kayaking the Nile, 
Did you take anything out of that that does help your mental health now when you look back? I think it, I, I learned to be a lot more present on the now. Like there was, you know, certainly less ruminating or stressing about the future. I mean, yes, there were things that were stressing me, but I just, the only way to deal with a lot of the stress on the trip you know, I got really stressed about the hippos and it just got out of control. I was getting so anxious about it. It was like, so you just got to wind this back. You've accepted the risk, just be in this moment and just how good it was when I was in the moment and out of mobile range. There was no mobile devices. It was none of that. And just bringing that back, um, I think that that has definitely helped. And and all those things that you sort of, you do, you, you, you challenge yourself, you take, things away and you know you uncover your own your own strengths sort of physically and mentally and I think that gives you the the confidence to deal with things that then come up yeah I think a lot of people I've interviewed on this podcast have said similar where they've had a goal or they've gone and uh, achieved something like whether it be a you know a big swim that they've never done before or a paddle or you know and it seems to have puts things into perspective for them I think yeah it it does and I think there's also that value of having real purpose in your life and the value, you know, I didn't have any kind of depressive episodes in the run up to the night or through it. And I just, and I really put so much of that down to having purpose and meaning in my life to, to sort of be excited about and to live for and focus on. And, and I think that that makes a real difference. So the future Will you go and do a paddle like that again? Absolutely. (laughs) So I did, I mean, I did the Murray River here in Australia about six months after, um, and which just sort of felt, anything after the night feels relatively easy. And I had had to sort of almost check myself and say, Sarah, you've been way too blase about this. Because I was like, great, I just get a kayak and off I go. Um, And... And then this, oh, no, I keep saying this year, but it was actually last year now. So um, a good friend of mine, Tara, and I, we cycled 4,700 Ks across Australia, which <clears throat> one of the big takeaways from that was stick to paddling because I don't like cycling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've definitely got plans to do – I really want to do a source to see uh, on each continent. So that's sort of the long-term, the long-term goal. Mm-hmm. Mate, fantastic. It's been a, a, a great listening to your story. It's uh, amazing. And, and I know how difficult it is because, you know, I do probably 30K paddles and that's enough for me. So what you did is um, absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, you can go out and achieve even more. Thank you. Now, at the end of the interview, we do uh, a segment called Five Fun Facts. I'm going to throw a whole lot of uh, questions at you and you can answer in whatever way you want, whatever comes out. There's no wrong or right answer. First one, favourite takeaway food? Oh, that would have to be, I'd have to go with burgers. And and, and actually, I'm going to, it's not a call out specifically, but Bondi Tony's. I now moved to Maroubra and my God, I really miss those burgers. <laughs> but yeah, definitely burgers. And I love Bondi Tony's. <laughs> Next time you travel overseas, where will you go? Oh, look, it's either going to be seeing family in the UK. So I was all set to go back to the UK for, for Christmas, but yeah, no surprises as to what caused that one to go sideways. So it's either going to be that, but then I've also, I've got a big birthday this year, which I'm in complete denial about. And my plan is to go on an adventure. So I really want to go horse trekking in Kyrgyzstan. So that's what I'm thinking of doing for that one. <laughs> Silver lining you discovered from COVID? Uh, I'd say, so the training I did in different places and with different people. So because we sort of got all those restrictions and the 5K rule and stuff like that, you know, going and paddling with different people, either from North Bondi Surf Club and then joining some of the people out at um, South Maroubra Surf Club. So then going out at Maroubra, which I hadn't been doing and going and doing outdoor gym workouts down at Malabar and just sort of then yeah, being forced to explore a little bit more of, of what was on my doorstep and, and just, you know, realising how blessed I was and the people that around me. So, yeah, it was. I'd probably say that was, was one of the silver linings. Last time you cried? I'd say last proper cry was probably on the cycle ride. There were some pretty dire situations that, that happened there. So, yeah, there were definitely there were tears there. What are you most proud of? 
Oh, and it's funny to like to say what I, I'm proud of this. It just feels I feel really uncomfortable saying that. I'd say, look, it would have to be the Nile trip. It would have to be the Nile. Uh, and, and certainly, like I say, sort of going back and, and writing the book about it just sort of made me realise what, you know, just how, how big it was and, and just what it took. So, yeah, I'm pretty chuffed with that. Great stuff. Great answers. Now, where when do you think the book will be coming out? So it'll be coming out this year. I'm hoping around about April time. So we're just doing the final edits at the moment, uh, getting the cover sorted, which is very exciting. So yes, that will be that will be out. I will be announcing that across the my socials. So yeah, Sarah Paddles on Instagram. Quick plug for that one. Um, so follow me on there, and you'll you'll certainly see see when it's out. Yeah, it's a recommended magnificent story, and uh, get out and buy the book when it comes out. Anyway, Sarah, it's been uh, great having you in the beach shack and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Cheers, ho Make sure you check out Sarah's book, Paddle the Nile, One Woman's Search for a Life Less Ordinary. It's due to be published in May of this year, 2022. You can follow Sarah on Instagram at Sarah Paddles. For further announcements, or head to her website, www.sarahjdavis.com to sign up for all the updates. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's, uh, and it's for the first time. I haven't seen him for a while, but uh, Jesse Pollock, how are you, mate? Good, Hoppo. Good to speak to you, mate. It's been too long. Mate, it's been a while, but I thought we'd have a chat because uh, all those years of being a lifeguard, he did so many rescues. Is there a rescue that stands out down there at Bondi? Mate, look, you do so many. One that most probably stands out for me is um, that time when I was actually, I was still a trainee. I think it might have only been my second season or something. And, uh, you know, one thing that we always say as a lifeguard, you never leave the, um, the tower unmanned. And uh, this time I had to, I had to leave the tower unmanned, but you know that was the decision I had to think. Well, do I leave the tower unmanned, or do I watch this guy drown like in front of my own eyes? It was a crazy experience, but um, yeah, I'll never forget it. I actually had to radio you to come across from your office and say, "Hoppo, this guy's pretty much drowning right in front of me. I need to leave the tower." And yeah, you were like, "Yeah, mate, go over and uh, do the rescue." and Lucky enough, I, I got to him just before he went under. Yeah, it's one of those things where you've got to make that split-second decision as a lifeguard, don't you? Because you know you guys are doing rescues at other parts of the beach. You've got to be watching them plus the you know other parts of the beach that no one's at. You've got to make that split-second uh, decision to go down. Well, I think one thing with, a, with being a lifeguard and you know being a good lifeguard, you just you can't second-guess yourself. You've just got to go with your instinct and, you know, 90 time, 99 times out of 100, it always, you know, pulls off. But that's, yeah, one thing you always got to do. You just got to just go for it. You can't think because, you know, in our, in our circumstances, you think, you know, that's a couple of seconds you're going to take from someone's life if they do drown. Do you think that's a, a major skill for to be a professional lifeguard is making that split-second decision and not hesitate if – you think over the years if people hesitate, potentially they could then miss someone? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's like, say, if you're paddling out on a rescue board and there's a wave coming and you hesitate, that couple of seconds that you're hesitating there, that wave's going to break on your head now. So I think, yeah, being a, you know, a, a professional lifeguard, you can't hesitate and you've always got to back, back uh, your ability. But, you know, obviously everyone that, you know, is a lifeguard. They usually got that, you know, that background of being around the ocean their whole lives. And when you say there's backup, and that's that's really good on what you did. You, you knew I was around, so you contacted me to come back you up in the tower. Then you could leave the tower and go down to the rescue. So just explain a bit more about that, how you've really got to think on your feet and who else you got around you. Yeah, well, that's that's, you know, being a lifeguard, it's not all about, how fast you swim or how fast you run on the beach or, you know, how good you are on a rescue board. It's like working everything that's happening around you 
and making the right decision at that point of time. Like me running out of the tower and doing a rescue and not telling you, the boys are going to come back to the tower and think, where's Jesse gone? But, you know, that's where you have to think, all right, I just had lunch before and I walked past Hoppo. Hoppo was in his office. So I know Hoppo's, you know, 20, 30 seconds away where the boys are already doing a rescue, so I can't get them on the radio. You know, Hoppo will be there in 20, 30 seconds, and by the time I hit the water, Hoppo's going to be there if something bad happens. Yeah, mate, it's a, a split-second thing and a good decision that you made. And, uh, mate, uh, really good to have you in the beach shack telling your, uh, your lifeguard story, but uh, we'll catch up very soon. Yeah, definitely, Hop. It's good to speak to you, mate. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Owen. He's from Sydney. He uh, writes in to say, how was it with the uh, shark attack recently uh, at Little Bay? Mate, Owen, it's uh, yeah tragic circumstances. A lot of big fish are around at the moment and pretty much is swimming around a long way out around the uh, rocks from Malabar around to Little Bay practising uh, for the ocean swim, which was coming up that weekend. A lot of fishermen on the rocks were uh, fishing for large fish. There's been a lot of fish around at the moment and this shark was hanging around and unfortunately he swam basically nearly right through where the fish were and the shark, so quite tragic there. And we have had a lot of rain. The water is very murky and brown at the moment, so it's recommended that, uh, you know, people take caution. A lot of sharks do like that murky water and hang around, especially with a lot of fish. Uh, water is quite warm at the moment, so everyone needs to be, uh, you know, quite vigilant at the moment. The lifeguards have got everything in place. They've now put in the drum lines from Bondi to Little Bay, so there's a, a lot of precaution has been put in place, so hopefully... Uh, Everybody can enjoy the ocean from uh, now on and we don't have any more incidents. So thanks, uh, Owen, for sending in your letter and we'll catch you all soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.